And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are a lot of discussions going on right now about gun violence in America in the wake of that horrific massacre in Uvalde, Texas. So I wanted to talk to an old friend, Arnie Duncan, the former U.S. Education Secretary, who's committed his life to preventing and interrupting violence on the streets of Chicago. And with him is Curtis Toller, an ex-gang leader who, after shooting and being shot, has become Arnie's partner in the mission of stopping the shooting and saving young lives. A conversation from the front lines in the battle against gun violence. Arnie Duncan, it's it's good to see you again, my friend. We've we've done this before, but uh, it was time to have another conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, the reason I wanted to uh, sit down with you is because the whole country is focused, at least for the moment, on gun violence because of the events in Uvalde. Texas and in Buffalo. But I was wondering how you processed these events, because as I I was saying before we uh, went on the air, uh, we deal with, uh, we as a country focus on this issue of gun violence uh, episodically when things like this happen. Uh, You're involved in the work of trying to inter- and prevent violence in Chicago on a daily basis. And I'm wondering how you, you're also a former school superintendent and obviously education secretary. I'm wondering how you process all of this. When you saw that story, what, what thoughts went through your head? Yeah, a, a couple of things, Dave. And you'll remember this as vividly as I do, that the, the worst day of President Obama's presidency was on the day of the Sandy Hook massacre. And he went down the next day. At that point, the, the Vice President Biden and I went down a couple of days later and Meeting with you know twenty families and five you know five teachers you know with uh, the families of the teachers who got killed going to the funeral of the principal there Don Hawksprung I just never imagined that kind of horror and this was like you know a decade later <laughs> that, that we're we're still here and I stayed close to one of those families actually one of the the moms whose son was killed at Sandy Hook Nicole Hockney she had yes. to come out and talk talk to our guys last week um, out out in Rose and where we work. And that was an incredibly powerful conversation. So the fact that we're still going through this a decade later, the fact that those changes didn't happen, that's one of the things that I feel that, you know, we just didn't get done. It's just a fail, failing in Congress is tough, but that we got basically zero done in terms of really, you know, making the country safer a decade ago. We're still here. So that's a, a disbelief and a horror and a heartbreak at that. The other thing is, as you know, David, that you know, mass shootings account for only about 3% of, of shootings, school shootings less than 1%. So the daily violence that, that Curtis and I and our team deal with here every day in Chicago, that's, that's the bulk of shootings. That's the bulk of homicides around the country. And so uh, to your point, we don't have the luxury of focus on, focusing on it episodically. This is a, a daily reality for us. And we're working extraordinarily hard to bring those numbers down um, here in Chicago and uh, of late, I've seen some very, very encouraging results, which happy to talk about if you want. No, I, I obviously we will talk about that. And Curtis Toller is your as- associate, uh, uh, someone who came, uh, who was on the street, uh, involved in the violence in our s- city, and has now committed himself to trying to prevent violence in our city. And we're going to speak to him later in this podcast. 
I just want to focus on the school issue for uh, a second uh, here because of your expertise and your experience. You, you know, you heard a lot of talk after this horrific uh, shooting in Texas about hardening the schools and about, you know, some people said, you know, get more armed security in the schools. Uh, some people said, you know, train teachers uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to to use uh, weapons. And what is your reaction to all of that? How much of a problem is this generally? Is it something that you thought about when you were a school superintendent? And what is the proper way to uh, deal with this? No, I thought about it every day, you know, when I was a superintendent and we lost, unfortunately, David, a student every two weeks due to gun violence here in Chicago. It was a horrific loss of life, but thank God never in a school, but it was a constant thought. Um, I spent time in D.C. talking to the FBI, talking to the principal of Colin Vine, who, who dealt with this. And you know me pretty well. I don't get mad easily. But this stuff, I, honestly, just enrages me because it's so dishonest. And we are literally playing and taking kids' lives because we're not honest. This quote-unquote hardening school, that's just an NRA soundbite that the, you know, a Republican Party or many Republican Party have accepted. But, Dave, it's physically impossible to harden arrival time. It's physically impossible to harden dismissal. dismissal. You can't harden recess. You can't harden sport events. It's not honest. More more security with guns. Um, that was in Parkland. They failed to act. More security of guns. That was in Texas. They don't act. People aren't prepared. Regular you know, people who aren't on a SWAT team, people who aren't in SEAL Team 6, um, they don't know how they react in these situations. That their, their thought is their own safety. And I don't, that's it, just, just being dead honest here. So more guns, more security. Uh, it's an absolute fault sense of security. It doesn't make our kids safer. The problem in all these school shootings are assault weapons. And if we wanted to take that on, if we wanted to remove assault weapons that are weapons of war, again, if you want to hunt ducks or hunt geese or hunt deer, more power to you. Um, nobody does that with an assault weapon. And so it's just a fundamentally dishonest thing. And the levels, not just the lives lost, which are you know, obviously those families you know, they'll never recover. They'll never recover from that. It's impossible to recover from that. But the level of fear and trauma that our kids across the country are dealing with, and you've heard the stories subsequent to Texas, Dave, of, you know, six-year-old girls saying to their mother, you know, what picture are you going to show of me when I'm killed on TV? And the fact that we allow millions of children, white, black, Latino, rich, poor, urban suburb, doesn't matter, millions of kids around the country to live with this level of fear is untenable. This is a made in America problem. It doesn't exist anyplace else. And I hate to say this. I always just try to be honest. I'm just convinced, you know, right now we have, we value our guns more than we value our children in this country. That's a devastating reality. More guns than people right now in circulation. You talk about uh, an assault weapons uh, ban. We had one in this country since that uh, expired. I think uh, the number of assault weapons has grown from 2 million to 20 million. Uh, have, have we lost that battle? How do you, how do you recover, you know, with this sea of weapons out there, how do you, how do you possibly uh, put the, the genie back in the bottle? Well, if we don't do it, you know, after Buffalo, if we don't do it after Texas, you know, I don't think we'll ever do it. And so I have been pretty pessimistic, quite honestly, David, but I'm more hopeful now. As you know, there's a bipartisan group working in Congress to try and get something done here. You know, Texas is, you know, prides itself on the number of guns and, you know, more good, you know, the other talking point, we need more good guys with guns. We had lots of good guys with guns who were, who stood on the sidelines and just watched in Texas, in the gun capital of America. 
And so if we're ever going to get something done now, uh, now's the time. Uh, Senator Murphy, I actually met him, I'll never forget, at Sandy Hook. He was a young congressman. That was his district when I went there. And I remember the look of devastation and horror on his face as he was trying to process, and I was. So this is very, very personal for him. I have a lot of confidence in his leadership. So I'm hoping Congress will get something done. Will it be as much as I would want or probably you would want? Um, No, but we have to take some steps in the right direction. This doesn't happen in any other industrialized nation in the world. This is a made in America problem. We can absolutely fix it if we have just a little bit, a little bit of courage. This is an important point. You know, we have, uh, I think, 11 and a half times the, and uh, it may be higher, but 11 and a half times the number of uh, gun-related deaths here. We don't have 11 and a half times the mental health problems. Uh, you know, so, you know, the, 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 we, we have 46% of the world's guns uh, here in the U.S., privately owned guns. And, you know, proponents will say, uh, and I had uh, Governor Ricketts from Nebraska on the podcast last week, and he said, you know, the Second Amendment is is uh, is a sacred thing, and we have to abide by it, and that's what the founders intended, and uh, so we have to be careful not to trample that. Uh, you, you don't have to trample it, but you know, there's you know, our founding fathers didn't envision assault weapons. They didn't envision tanks. They didn't envision nuclear weapons. No one can have a tank in our country. No one have a nuclear weapon. Why were weapons in war you know, on our streets? It just, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. And this is not about trampling on anybody's rights. This is about trying to keep our kids safe. Our kids have rights. Parents have rights. Yes. And uh, which one is more important? And for me, it's just such, a, such an obvious choice. You talk about Senator Murphy and his efforts uh, in a bipartisan group to come up with some answers here. And you also say, and you're right, that what they're going to come up with is 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 far short of what you're talking about. Uh, they're talking about expanded background checks for young people between 18 and 21 before they can buy an assault rifle uh, so that they you know can look into their criminal background, their mental health background, red flag laws uh, beefed up. Uh, but these are sort of marginal Issues And I, I'm going to talk to uh, Kurt when he joins us about this. But when you think about Chicago, the killing that's going on on these streets, I mean, my supposition, and you know more as, as, uh, as the founder of CRED, and we'll talk about CRED in a second, you know more about this than I. These young people aren't buying these uh, guns, by and large, at gun shops. They're not buying them from licensed federal dealers. No, so, so those, those ch- changes, to be clear, honestly, wouldn't make things much safer here in Chicago. But if they save a life anywhere, for me, that's, yes. that, that's I could, I couldn't gun, agree more. Gun and I'm not, I, I think one, one of the things that we do wrong in our politics, I mean, one is, is this sense that if we can't get everything, we should do nothing. And yeah, right. that is a, that's a really self-defeating point of view. But anyway, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. So if, if we can... If, we can get anything done in Congress that's really, really important, step in the right direction. And whether lightens our load, you know, Curtis and mine, our team's load here, that, that's a little bit, you know, not the point. And it's fast, you know, gun violence is just, it's, it's like the pandemic, Dave. It's like COVID. It travels through social networks. It doesn't know barriers. Chicago, as you know, gets critiqued all the time that 
know, we have tough gun laws and too much violence, and both of those are absolutely true. And what I've always said forever was that, well, Chicago doesn't is an island. We don't have a moat around us, and the guns pour to us, our, our city from Indiana, and that's been proven almost half the crimes here with guns are committed with guns coming from Indiana. And what's fascinating is recently, in the past week, I saw that that uh, the state of Hawaii, which does have a moat around it, has an ocean, has the toughest gun laws around, and they have the lowest level of gun violence um, of our 50 states. And so those gun laws actually work uh, when you have some barriers. But this is a national problem that needs national solutions. You know, you talked about the trauma of these young people who went through the shooting in Uvalde, and they're getting counseling, and they're getting support, as they should. God, God bless them. I, I think about them. I think about my own grandkids when I look at their faces, and uh, it's unimaginable what they've been through. But it strikes me that kids in Chicago uh, are growing up around uh, gun violence and death uh, in some of our neighborhoods. Uh, and, and this is true in other cities as well, but we're, we're focused on Chicago. They're going through this all the time. And uh, the, if their level of PTSD must be uh, extraordinary, and it generally goes unaddressed. That's exactly right. You know, Kirk can talk if he wants about his personal story of the violence yeah. he dealt with and didn't, didn't receive any counseling and the impact that I had on him. But I'll just say a couple of things. One, for me, it's not PTSD. It's not post. It's present. It's current. It's constant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one, you know, I do this work now for a lot of reasons, but all my life, Dave, obviously I've done education. I preach think long-term and for gratification and think about college and I, at a certain point, started to think I was speaking Greek, speaking in a foreign language to kids because they were literally just trying to survive. And when I led the Chicago public schools, I kept a, a picture above my desk that a young man in a middle school, my business school gave to me. And it was a picture of him climbing up a ladder. And what he wrote on the, the caption was, if I grow up, I want to be a fireman, not when I grow up. And that's the norm. That's a very rational feeling that many, many of our kids, particularly our young black boys in Chicago and South and West Sides, have is if I grow up. And so many don't think they're going to live past 18 or past 21. And Kirk can talk about his own experience and when he sort of came to the realization that maybe he needed to live or, or, or could live. And so I would love to get back to education at some point, but we have to make it so our kids can actually dream and have a future. When I visit schools, and I, I wish I was exaggerating or lying. I'm not. I always ask kids, it doesn't matter, third grade, fifth grade. I say, you know, raise your hands if you know someone's been shot. And 100% of the hands go up, Dave, every single hand. Then I say, how many of you know three people have been shot? Five, 10, 15. And often a half to a third of the kids' hands are still in the air. And I've never been to Iraq, Dave. I've never been to Afghanistan. I've never been to a quote unquote war zone. But our kids are living in literal war zones. And yes, that amount of trauma. When our kids talk, one guy told me, you know, I just used to ride my bike around and people would be shooting. I, I just didn't think anything of it. It just becomes normalized. And it's not normal. And it's never, ever the kid's fault. We as adults have failed them. We failed to keep them safe. And that's why I do the work I do now, just to try and give kids their, their childhoods back. That's the entire motivation. You've talked a lot about, about crime. You've, you've started CRED. And uh, tell me what the acronym stands for. Yeah, Creating Real Economic Destiny. Right. And so much of your focus is in essentially resting some of these young men off the street who uh, who have enlisted in these gangs as a matter of survival uh, as much as anything else. Economic survival uh, uh, being a big part of it. You know, you hear 
thing that strikes me, obviously you, you're quite adamant about guns and the easy availability of guns. But you know, when you hear the critics of gun control or gun safety laws, they say, well, it's, you know, we have to get at the root causes of uh, why there's violence. In a sense, you're saying the same thing. You may dr- it may draw you to other conclusions, but you're saying the same thing. It's not just about getting guns off the street. No, and it, these, these issues are very complex. And I think people who try and just do the sound bites to simplify them really do this, you know, critically important topic a, a real disservice. I'll say a couple things. Um, violence is always the last manifestation of so many social ills of poverty, of racism, of disinvestment, of redlining, of marginalization. You never see high levels of gun violence in healthy, you know, communities, whether it's you know Lincoln Park or Hyde Park where where you you know you and I live. Um, it's just different. So all we're really trying to do is build build healthy neighborhoods. Um, I would love to get rid of poverty tomorrow. I would love to get rid of guns tomorrow. I can't do either one of those. Dave, I don't know how to do that. What I do know how to do is give young men and young women a reason to put down the guns. And so uh, I would love to, you know, this to me, gotta, we got to walk and chew gum. Let's work to alleviate poverty. Let's work on gun policy. But while we're doing that, we have kids dying and people dying every single day in the streets here. So I can't afford to wait on those debates, on those things to happen. We got to do everything we can to reach as many guys now to create hope, um, to help them self-differentiate what's going on in the streets. And I've never dealt with so much heartbreak and so much trauma, quite honestly. It's extraordinarily difficult. But I've also never experienced this level of joy and meaning and just seeing the incredible transformation of folks who are you know caught in these wars caught in these battles we've had guys who've been shot multiple multiple times unfortunately many guys who've shot others and to see them putting down the guns and making peace with you know they're they're they're, they're calling their ops their rivals and working together to create safer communities you know oh let me we hate that we hate the the, the weekends day here the, the the holiday weekends memorial day fourth of july Labor Day, those are times of extraordinary stress for us. We send lots of guys out of town to remove targets from the city. We have outreach workers out all over the city, but in the two neighborhoods where we worked the hardest and longest, North Lawndale and Rose in Chicago saw way too much violence, 40, 40 shot, 10 killed. It's horrific. In those two neighborhoods, David, we saw zero shootings. Zero. It was extraordinary. Curry and the outreach team, elites, deserve so much credit for creating that environment that these areas that have been historic war zones are able to find peace even when the rest of the city continues to struggle. And these are, you know, short victories. We got a lot, a lot of hard work ahead of us. This is not a mission accomplished moment, but I get to see what's possible every single day. And that's the extraordinary joy in this work. Yeah. And just explain the model a little bit more. Yeah. So it's evolved and we're changing every, every day. And I promise you, we don't have it all figured out. We're making lots of mistakes, but we have five pillars to the work. And the tip of the spear is our street outreach team, which currently leads on the South and West sides. And that's like our HR function. These are guys that all you know come from the streets that have real credibility. We call it LTO, license to operate. And they're basically our, our HR function. They're our recruiters. And they bring young men and women into our program. They also put in place non-aggression agreements and peace treaties between groups. And that's really important to sort of create the space for good things to happen. Once folks come into our programming, programming there, there are four parts there. Everyone is given a life coach. And we say you know, experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. And we have lots of life coaches who have, you know, been through a lot. Many, you know, unfortunately have served a lot of time, but they've come out the back end and really want to help, you know, steer our young men and women in the right direction. That's critical. Um, everyone has a, a, a therapist, a, a clinician. We have 17 full-time clinicians. And Dave, we talked about, you know, the trauma 
And that's that I, this is not, you know, life was fine until 17 and things went wrong. This often since birth that our guys have lived with trauma every single day. And, uh, we say, you know, hurt people, hurt people, but heal people can heal themselves and their families and community. So that piece is critically important. We have an education team. We've had, uh, you know, almost 200 guys get high school diplomas. We've got amazing graduation ceremonies and a set of guys, uh, in college now. And then a jobs team. And our goal is to move guys. People work with us for 12 to 18 months, stay very intensively every single day. And then we spin them off into legal economy. And we have about uh, 44 employers and in 17 industries hiring. And we have some people now have been in their jobs for four years. It's pretty amazing this time it has flown by. And so I say out there, our guys are going to eat. They're going to pay rent. They're going to take care of their kids. It's up to us whether that's in the legal economy or the illegal economy here in Chicago. That illegal economy, unfortunately, almost inevitably leads to leads to bloodshed. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You talk about the successes you've undoubtedly uh, lost some of the young men you were working with uh, to the street. I know there was a shooting outside your offices, uh, you know, not long ago. As much as you invest in uh, in this and in these young people, talk about that and your own trauma in dealing with that loss. Yeah, this is, it's, a, it's a tough topic. And I'm, yeah, I'm willing to talk about it. It's not an easy thing to talk about. So it, for, for all of us, it is, um, it is honestly very dangerous work at times. And I think we, we're all willing to do what it takes to create safety. And that means we have to sacrifice, you know, personally, we'll, you know, we're, we're all accept that, you know, that, that need. And, um, we all do everything we can to stay safe, but we work inherently in, you know, very tough environments. When we lose someone, whether it was, that was in January, right outside, young man walking, walking outside of uh, our building, when it was over the Memorial Day weekend where one of our alumni was killed, a guy that comes from the same, same community, same, you know, same, uh, Click affiliation is is Curtis. Uh, it, it's it's devastating. I can't overstate the, the heartbreak. And we live in a very unnatural world, David. So we are always because the police don't solve anything here in Chicago. Solve almost nothing. That's the biggest driver of violence, actually, because there's no actual justice. There's street justice. So we're always trying to stop the next shooting, trying to stop the retaliation. So when something happens, you don't have time to, to process. You don't have time to grieve. We're immediately trying to, to sit on guys, to reach out, to try to you know minimize rumors. And streets always have a million different theories as to what happened. And people call it getting their lick back. They want to get the lick. So we're constantly, we have to go into overdrive, touching everybody, trying to sit on them, helping them try and cool down. And what I've tried to learn to do is to find a little time, you know, after the, that a couple of days to, you know, to grieve, to process, to do whatever. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult. That's all I can say. But the final thing I'll say is David, I, I've thought about a lot. I really, I need to feel that pain because if I start to become numb, then I, I think I'm ineffective and I can't do it. And so I, I hate the pain. I hate the heartbreak. I hate that the communities go through this. We go to these balloon releases, David balloons should be for graduations and for birthday parties and Every freaking time I see a balloon now, it's just I'm I'm just thinking about you know people dying and uh, but I, I because this feel because that the balloons are released at at, at, at sort of the memorials for, for yeah, young people yeah. just, uh, the, 
been released this, this weekend for, for, for this young man. Um, but I need to feel that pain as much as I hate it to, to fuel me, to keep my humanity and to push me to, to, you know, try and work that much harder and that much smarter to, to not have another <laughs> balloon release. Do you and your staff also take advantage of the counseling and therapy that's there? Or do you have outlets for that? We, we, we do. And I'll speak very personally. I, I, yes, I, that's really important to me to be able to try and process and have some time to think this through. And I, I for a long time, just being very candid, I, I didn't. I sort of kept it all bottled up inside. And You're I a pretty lose, stoic guy in some ways. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not the healthiest. And I, I started to lose friends to gun violence in, in high school, Dave. And I, I didn't have a counselor then. I sort of bottled all that up. And I think that stuff shapes you and honestly scars you in some ways that are pretty difficult to talk about. And I, you know, all of that, it's fine to be stoic. It's fine to be whatever, but th- this stuff is, is, um, it is literally life and death. And the, the joy of it is amazing. And the heartbreak is, is tremendous. And I, I'm trying to do a better job of caring for myself. I don't even like the term self care because it puts the onus on yeah. everyone. I, I want, we're trying to take care of each other as a team. And if someone needs a day off and needs a couple of days, you know, the work will be here. Um, it's not going, it's not going away. You come by this honestly. Uh, it's not just that you experienced loss when you were in high school, but your mom, you know, was a heroic figure on the south side of Chicago. You told that story the last time we got together here on this podcast. But I just want to remind people about about your mom and what she did and how that helped shape you. Yeah, she she worked uh, for fifty years in the North Carolina. Oakland neighborhood running a little after school tutoring program and raised my sister and brother as a part of it. So we had this interesting, uh, maybe unique existence that we didn't realize was unique, but we grew up, you know, here in Hyde Park and our friends school day here at the lab schools and at you know, Bartlett gym where you and I played and other gyms. And, uh, but then in the afternoon had my afternoon friends and just, we just grew up as a part of a program literally since birth. And so, um, all my life I've seen the, again, the, the amazing possibilities when young people have supports and opportunity and love. And, uh, you know, so many of her, her students, you know, beat the odds and do extraordinarily well. And we lost good friends. One of my, uh, you know, big mentors in, in her program, I was one of the young guy growing up underneath a guy named Daryl Fort was, was killed and that stuff. Uh, that was just our reality. And so I, I saw what was possible. You told a story about her. She herself was threatened at times because there were gangs that didn't like what she was doing. <laughs> Kurt probably hasn't heard this story. Kurt will laugh because it was actually Kurt's group. So in the neighborhood where we worked was the, the Blackstone Rangers. And yeah. uh, the first first church, that, that that was a group that Kurt was a was a leader of. So we can we can talk about that. Um, Kurt wasn't in that neighborhood. He was a little further south. Um, but the first church where she was working at, they wanted to use that church as an arsenal. And uh, the, the minister wouldn't let them. So they gave us a warning, but then they firebombed the church. So we, nope, we weren't there. That's one of my earliest childhood memories was I was probably four or five years old, carrying books down to the church down the block because we could no longer work there. But that group actually ended up protecting my mother. Um, many of the members you know, came to her, her, her center. Um, honestly, they protected me in the streets and you know, younger brothers and sisters went. So it was a rough start to the relationship, but uh, she was she was tough as nails. And um, I mean, lots of instances. Number one, where a guy said, you know, he didn't want any white people in the community, and if she came back the next day, you know, he'd, he'd kill it, he'd kill her. And I remember we we went home. I was probably eight or nine, and we just went home. We talked about it that night at dinner, and she just said, "If we start running, we'll just keep running forever." And we just went back the next day, and. Uh, 
he, he we were there and he wasn't. And that was a tremendous lesson for me that you you, you know you can feel fear, um, but you can't show fear, and it's important to be present. As you do your work today, you and your team, and you mentioned that there's danger associated with it. I'm sure you get a lot of resistance uh, from just as your mom did for what you're doing out there. We actually don't. It's really that's a good question. We really, I mean. Not everyone loves it, but that that's not, I was sort of worried about more being in the wrong place at the wrong time or being, you know, mistaken, you know, curse out of outreach that, you know, they've been, they've been shot at. And uh, so I don't want to jinx us, but people understand what we're doing. They understand why we're out there all the time. No people on the blocks. We walk, we talk, we're, you know, we're out every weekend. And uh, it really there may be skepticism at first and a lot of our guys don't, you know, you really want to pay me to improve my life. There's skepticism, there's cynicism, but there isn't, um, people have, people have embraced us and I can't tell how many people, you know, thank you for being out here. Thank you for doing what you're doing. You know, nobody comes out. And so I really feel more than anything embraced by the communities in, in, in which we work. Let's bring Kurt in. First of all, welcome. Artie was referring to your own story and your own journey. Tell us about that about what led you into a life of, of, of guns and, and, and violence and what led you out of it? Oh, sure, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I think, you know, when I really think about my life and some of the young brothers and, and sisters that we work with, it's not a lot, not, it's not a lot different from theirs. Uh, you know, uh, compared to some, it's even, it was even a lot easier, even though that seems kind of hard to fathom. But I think that there are three things that really shape who you are. That's, conditions, circumstances, and relationships, right? And so I grew up, you know, in, in, in a very violent condition, right? With a, with a real young mama. My mother had me when she was 16 years old. My dad was about 15 or 16, heavily gang involved. And she was trying to do the right thing by me. But like I say all the time, she just chose, you know, some of the wrong guys to deal with, right? And, you know, because of that, you know, I was in a lot of violent situations where I was uh, physically abused. She was physically abused. And unfortunately, uh, she lost her life untimely to domestic violence. And how old were you when that happened? 17. So how does, how does a young person process all of that? And what led you into the gang, into guns? You asked a, good, a great question. How do you process? You really don't. I don't think you ever process you know, someone losing their life in such a tragic way. And that's, and that's one of the things that I think about, especially when we work with the young folks that we work with, how are they going to process it? And I don't think that you can process it on your own, right? I think that there are steps that you need people to help you process that. But unfortunately, no one was there to help me process not only her untimely death, but all the things leading up, leading up to that. And then I go back to, the, to one of the other things that I talked about and that was the conditions. So the conditions that I was living in at that, at that particular time was driven by gang violence, right? And so, uh, unfortunately, uh, I was picked on as a young adult. I was bullied. Not as a young adult, but as a young child, I was bullied. So I decided to join the gang, right? You know, you hear that old cliche, if you can't beat them, join us. So that's exactly what I did. I eventually joined the gang. And uh, probably about nine to 10 years old was when I joined my first gang. Uh, and then with, with me Growing up in such a violent condition, I became violent myself, right? And so everything that I that, that I faced, I always faced it with violence. And then when my mom was killed, you know, that was the closest person to me in my life. And I really didn't, you know, again, I didn't have anyone to help me process those thoughts. So I was willing to die as well. And so that made me more violent than I had ever been. 
you've been shot and you've shot. How many different shooting incidents were you involved in where you got shot? Five. And I've been shot six times. And you survived all of those, which is a miracle. Yes, it is. Because uh, the last time I was shot, I was at, no, that was the time before the last. I was actually shot in the head. Oh, my. But you, you've also, you, you used your gu- uh, guns as well. Talk about that. Talk about just the act of, 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 of shooting. We see it all the time right now on the streets. Young people, they get into a dispute and it immediately escalates to the point of violence. Talk about that and, and sort of how that unfolds. Yeah, I think the first thing that I need to talk about is, you know, um, just being at such a young age and being able to 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 have a gun at my disposal, right? I think that how was did you how did you get them, Kurt? My first gun was actually my grandfather's gun, right? He would he, he would hide it, and I would take it, sneak it out, and then sneak it back. You know, that was the first time. <laughs> that was the first time that I had a gun, and the first gun that I had. No, that was actually the second one. The first one was actually a starter pistol. You could use. You know, back in the day, I don't want to reveal my age, but you used to get buy these starter <laughs> pistols from like your local convenience store, yeah. right? And so that was actually my first gun. And then uh, I was still my, my grandfather's gun. And then, you know, other guns, you know, as I got older, they were just readily available in the community that I, that I was living in for me to get. And I, I tell people all the time that, you know, that once you shoot a gun, you know, for some, it becomes an addiction, right? You know, you it's like an adrenaline rush that you get. And also, I think the, the trauma that was imposed on me uh, was allowed me to be able to shoot a lot easier because every time that I would want to, uh, you know, inflict this pain, that I would inflict this pain on others, I would just see uh, the man who killed my mother. Yeah, it's just I don't want to leave the gun uh, thing. You say guns are, are readily available. You know, we have this discussion about these laws and, and, and so on. But you weren't, as I mentioned to Arnie earlier, you, you weren't going to gun dealers and gun shops and buying these guns. These guns were available to you, to the gang on the street. Yeah, not to the caliber that they are available right now. But, yeah, they definitely were available to us you know, for purchase. And again, you know, a lot of things, you know, haven't changed. We were able to get them from Indiana, you know, down south, Mississippi, Alabama, places like that. Yeah. And you you, you say it, it's not to the degree it is today. So it's worse today. Oh, much worse, especially the caliber of guns that these young men and women are, are able to get in the cartridges. And when I say the cartridges, the ammunition, right? When you talk to some of these young men, like if you have a, if you have a weapon that shoots less than 50 times, then you don't have a good weapon in their eyes. Jeez. Artie talked about a lot of these crimes never get prosecuted, but you did go, you did serve time. Yeah, I served time a couple of times. Uh, and, you know, and the last time I really don't, you know, I don't like talking about it because a young man lost his life, but I was shot in the head also. So I was given six years. Uh huh. A young man lost his life who you shot? They say that I had something to do with it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So how did you make the decision that? This is not the life you wanted. How did you make the decision to pull yourself out of what, what was obviously a really, really tough situation where the getting out didn't seem possible? And this and this goes to the relationship part that I was speaking about. And unfortunately, a, a lot of the young men and women we work with don't have those relationships. I had a strong um, support system, right? Even though my mom was deceased, I had a grandmother who really cared about me and loved me. I had sisters and family members. And I also had friends who weren't that heavily gang involved that I could rely on, right? So it was this support system. 
and also, you know, I had children, right? I had my son and, and I tell this story all the time when he was born, he looked so much like me that I thought he was coming to replace me. So I didn't think that I had a lot of love. I didn't think that I had a lot of time left on the earth, right? Because of some of the things that I had, I had did and, you know, my past and some of the things that I was continuing to do. But I think the thing that, that changed me most directly was that being a father, being a father, being a really good friend, you know, I had, you know, a girlfriend at that time who's now my wife, uh, became more important to me than being a gang leader, right? I had to, I had to shift, right? And so, in my mind, the shift of me being a father was way more important and had way more impact on me being a gang leader. And um, talk about the relationship with Arnie and with Cred and how that came about. Yeah. So I met I met Arnie through Father Flager, um, and mm-hmm. he was still part of the, uh, the the Obama administration. And again, you know, when he showed up and I took it, we had this conversation a lot. I thought, you know, he was just another politician showing up, you know, it was maybe election time and, you know, was going to sell these pipe dreams that they always do it. And I would never see him again, but he said that he would come back. And, you know, fortunately he was a man of his word. He came back. We had a conversation. He asked me that I want to join the team. And here I am now. And, and you know, he always tells me, he was like, you know, I, I was never a politician. I was just in the politics. <laughs> Talk to me about the work you're doing. And, I mean, there is this sense, it's not just in Chicago, but certainly people in Chicago feel it, that violence is out of control. And, you know, we see all these tragic events, the the, the stuff that happened at Millennium Park here in Chicago, where uh, someone was killed. And, you know, we saw over the weekend in 13 different cities, kind of mass shootings, one in Philadelphia in a very crowded downtown location where two guys got in a fight and the next thing you know, everybody's got guns drawn and they're firing at each other. Are things worse now? And if so, why? I think it depends on really what lens that you look at it from. Uh, We haven't been under 400 homicides here in Chicago since 1965, right? We still haven't surpassed the homicide rate of the 90s, right? When you look, when you take it, when you look at it from a statistical point of view, Uh, but they're, they're really, really bad, right? I mean, I won't be one to say that, you know, but like Arnie was saying, I think that we're, we're getting better, right? When, when, when I talk to young people and talk to some of the, 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 the residents in these communities, they don't feel safe, but they're feeling safer, if that makes sense, right? But things are still bad, right? And, and, and for me, um, when I was directly involved in it, it didn't feel as bad as, as bad as it does now because I was actually, you know, so, uh, so heavily involved in it because, you know, I was proud of it, you know, but me, I'm still a part of it, but now I'm trying to be more of a solution. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I think it's sort of the elephant in the room question, but you're watching all of this public outrage mourning around these kids being killed in Texas, which was an awful, awful thing. But as Arnie mentioned earlier, you know, kids are being killed on a daily basis uh, in our cities and in in Chicago. It's a frequent uh, occurrence. Was there any part of you that said, hey, 
This may be news to you guys, but it's not news to us. This is the way we, you know, we've been living with this reality in our communities for a long time. Was there any of that? A little bit, right? Here in Chicago, a person is shot now every two and a half hours. But, you know, like Arnie um, referred to, uh, Nicole came and, and, you know, had the conversation and it was tragic. What, what's happening in these mass shootings are, are tragic. Yes, we do have mass shootings here in Chicago, you know, but, you know, whether, whether it's black, white, Latinx, you know, people are still dying and that's not good, right? And we all have to come together. Again, whether it's, you know, in Texas, whether it's in Chicago or Philadelphia, we all have to come together because we are all losing lives. Let's, uh, let's talk about cred and, and sort of the philosophy behind it. The essence of it is why do guys stay in gangs? And we're, and we're talking mostly about 18 to 25 year olds, is the 16 to 25 year olds. But why do they, why do they stay in gangs? And what does it take to, uh, to, to lure people away? I think you guys have said there are about 25,000 uh, young people. Is that right? Who are sort of at risk? to become part of this life or are part of this life right now? One of the things that we all have to do is, is, you know, we have to strategize. And I think that's something you know a little bit about, David, is strategy. Yeah. Right? I see you've got, you've got one of my old clients on your sweatshirt there, Harold Washington. So yeah. I guess I, yeah. 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 It's so it, it's all about strategy. And I think that one of the strategies that, that we've come up with is that, you know, we're not, we're not anti-gang, we're anti-violence, right? I believe that it is, it's better than everyone's DNA to want to be a part of something, right? And so I think we have to do a better, we have to do better at influencing what the groups, what the group dynamic as a whole is doing. If, if, if we had all of these gangs right now, like you said, we have about 2,500 different organizations, right? But uh, organizations or cliques, right? But what if we just turned it or shift the focus of these groups into being anti-violence instead of violence? What if we take, turned all these 2,500 groups into being, to, you know, to start, a, to start being voters blocks, right? Then, you know, it wouldn't be that bad. I'm hoping I'm making some sense to you, David. No, no, that does make sense to me. I mean, I think, Arnie, uh, what Kurt's saying is so important because, you know, I, I did a podcast just a few weeks ago with a fellow named Shaka Sangur. You know, Shaka basically was out on the street alone. And he said, you know, these guys took me in and I was part of something. This sort of need for community is part of the attraction of being in a gang. Now that you, you just hit the nail on the head and we all need to be part of something. Some of us are lucky enough to be part of, you know, sports teams, you know, growing up and that's a sense of family, but everyone, everyone wants a sense of family. And a lot of our guys, their families fall apart, like Kurtz fell apart. And that need for family doesn't go away. And so you find it on the streets. And all we're trying to do, Dave, is create a substitute family with life coaches, with outreach workers, with clinicians. And, you know, our guys have lived extraordinarily rough lives. I always say they, they've always had role models. You know, Kurt had role models. Our guys had role models. They just weren't necessarily the right ones. And if we could just put a different set of role models in their lives, the vast majority of guys are going to choose to come our way. They like the positivity. Our guys talking about how they love each other, you know, how, how they're loved. That's to get young men to talk about that. You know, that's, that's not easy, but that's, that's just a, a basic human desire. Um, one of our young guys the other day, Dave, we had a million crazy stories. He said, you know, he was basically on his own at nine. At nine years old, he had to become a man because of the situation. And who's available to a nine-year-old? You know, other folks weren't, but yeah, the gangs are. 
know, people often say it's great you're given a second chance, and I basically reject that. I think in the vast majority of cases, we're given a first chance. And we have guys in every community looking to come in, come our way. They're recruiting their fellow clicks in, as, as Kurt said, if we can bring a whole group in and bring in their ops, that's, that's like, that's heaven for us. And so again, it's extraordinarily difficult and heartbreaking, but it's, I'm actually unbelievably hopeful because I, I see every day what's possible. I, I know what these guys want and I know what they're capable of. How much does the ability to hold out the possibility of employment of a steady paycheck mean to these young people. We should say you're uh, funded in large measure by a grant from the Emerson Collective. So we start guys out at a, at a pretty modest stipend. It sort of grows from there. And it's really interesting. I always ask the guys, and Kurt was making a lot more money on the streets than Kurt's making today. And and about ha- it's really interesting. It's about half and half. About half our guys I always say, coming to us, are you taking a pay cut or a you know, pay increase? It's about 50-50. What sort of broke my heart, I mean, I learned so much every day. But in our first group of 25 guys that Kurt and another one of our team members, Craig, helped recruit. These were tough guys, guys who were shooting, guys that had been shot. Uh, one guy was living in his car and one guy was living on a porch. And one of the biggest issues we deal with, Dave, is homelessness. We do a, a whole bunch around housing and we need to do a lot more around housing. So that, there's a myth that everything's rolling. And one of the things I was getting started, I was visiting Cook County Jail all the time, just talking to guys. That was my, my focus group. You've done other focus groups. And I tested all my theories and I kept saying, you know, we all have a price point. And what would it take for you to put down the guns? This is going back about four or five years now, six years, but they consistently, it was $12, $13 an hour. And I really thought people were lying to me. I'm like, you telling me if I pay you $12 or $13 an hour, you'll put down the guns. And like, we're out, we're out. And I heard it dozens and dozens of times. So that's basically where we started. And that's again, the, the heartbreak of this day. It's so much more expensive to lock someone up. It's so much more expensive to do these other things than just to, to you know, give them a livable wage. But I also want to be clear a job by itself isn't sufficient because a lot of our guys aren't ready to work. You know, there's too much trauma. There's too much anger. So there's a saying, you know, nothing stops a bullet like a job. That's a nice saying, but you need the clinical services. You need to help guys, you know, get ready for those situations. Um, but the economic, the, so the economic piece is very important, but it by itself is not sufficient. Yeah. Kurt, talk about from the perspective of the young men you were working with. You talked about the need for community. How much is, is the, just the financial elements of it that need to survive? I think Arnie hit it on the head, right? You know, some of these young men and women are making, you know, a substantial amount of money on the streets, but the majority of them are not, right? And again, we're not giving them a whole lot of money, but the money does, you know, put a little bit of money in their pocket, may pay a bill or two. But like I said earlier, it's more of the relationships that we're starting uh-huh. to form with these young men and women, with, with the outreach workers, the life coaches, and also the clinicians that really get to start to dive deep into the root causes of why they're, you know, so intrigued and, and so involved in the violence. And, 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 and we also just have to get, you know, go from individual transformation, transformation to community violence suppression. And I think we can change everyone individually, but in the same time, we have to start to try to transform those communities which they live in as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm just intrigued by you, and you must have a lot of, you know, you use the word, the cred is the name of the organization. You must have a bunch of it. I mean, you've got the, the scars and the history. Does that buy you credibility with the young men you're talking to? That gets me in the door, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. But then it's up to me to build a relationship. I'm what you call a big OG now. 
You know what I mean? I'm kind of age. I'm kind of aged out. You know what I mean? But it, you know, for those who do know me, have heard about me. But I'm relatable, right? And again, relatable goes to the relationships. And you know, once we build those relationships and those bonds, then I can really start doing better work. I don't want to blow through this. Like, does Kurt have credibility? Absolutely. But I think that's probably. of his effectiveness, 97% of his effectiveness is these guys know he loves it and that he loves them. And I've seen Kurt in some of the toughest, heartbreaking, most dangerous situations. And they know that he's willing to give his life for them. And they feel that. So this is not about, you know, glorifying some past, you know, life. This is about what he and, uh, you know, every member of our team gives every single day. And our guys know that and they feel that. And that's what makes Kurt as effective at helping to change lives um, as he is. It's not some past whatever. It's- yeah, but you know, it's, it, what's interesting to me is you, you know, at one time in your life, you were the leader of a, a leader of a, a, a gang, a, a gang that was a pretty big organization at one time. That required leadership skills as well. And maybe some of the same leadership skills in terms of conveying to the people who you were leading that you cared about. Them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and, it, and it drives me and sometimes it, it, it depresses me to, to a certain extent, right? Because uh, for such a long time, I was leading a lot of, the, a lot of people in the wrong direction, right? <laughs> and, and so I think about that as well. And, and I think Arnie could talk about it a little more about, you know, how, how, to, how to transition those skills from the street into everyday skills, right? And a lot of the young, not a lot, all of the young men and the women that we work with do possess these skills. Just think about the skill that it takes to really just maneuver through these crime uh, uh, war zones that they're living in every day. I get the sense that all of us, no matter how healthy the communities we come from, no matter how much luck we have, this pandemic has had a huge impact uh, on people. And uh, as with everything else, uh, communities that are underserved and neglected, that have uh, all kinds of problems, it, it has to be worse. How much? How much has the pandemic uh, impacted on violence? And what did you guys do during that period to reach reach people? Well, I start with this, and I'll just say we just, we kept working, and then I'll just let Arnie finish. Yeah. Well, you talk about essential workers, and you know we're we're, we're fighting two pandemics: a pandemic of COVID and a pandemic of gun violence. So, unfortunately, you know a lot of us got sick, but we didn't have the luxury of, of, of not backing off. And we, we try to do some stuff by Zoom. And our, again, it's all relationship-based. Our, our work doesn't work by Zoom. So, But how much did the isolation that people were feeling and the disruption in their lives, how much did that contribute to a, an environment in which violence kind of... Two things. For us, the, the school shutting down was a real blow and a lot of the carjackings and stuff where, where kids that were already on the edges of school and then, you know, just lost them. What people don't realize when schools closed, when the schools closed, they lost all the extracurriculars. So they lost sports, they lost band, they lost those things that connect kids to schools. And that was devastating. We've actually started a youth program now and have about 50 young people because the need was so great there. But our worst time, Dave, wasn't just the pandemic. The worst time was right after George Floyd's murder. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we had three, three of our young men killed. We had a staff member killed. We had an 18-month-old young son of one of our participants killed going to laundromat with his mother. Those six, eight weeks after George Floyd's murder were the roughest, I mean, just horrific time for us. And you know, we've, we've emerged from that. But the combination of the pandemic and the isolation and the rage and chaos after George Floyd, um, that was the darkest 
six to you know eight weeks of, of, of our short history in Craig. That was incredibly difficult. It raises the question about policing. Uh, you know, you've said many times that the, a lot of these crimes go unprosecuted. And so there is a sense of that, that if you're going to get justice, you got to get it yourself. At the end of the day, a lot of these these crimes will go will go unpunished. But what about the? This is a complicated issue. Uh, people in the communities want safety, but they also uh, want police to be respectful. They want police to observe people's civil rights and so on. Arnie, talk about that. Yeah, it's it's not again. It, it's simple to articulate. It's hard to do. We, we just we all want effective policing. And I desperately wish more crimes get solved. And this is a, a tough thing to say, but it's, it's just the truth that the biggest driver of violence in Chicago is police ineffectiveness. And in Roseland, where you know where we started our work, we still work. Dave, it's not just most crimes don't get solved. Eighty nine percent of shootings go unsolved. Eighty nine percent of shootings go unsolved. If you talk to our guys about all the all the victims, all the friends have lost, no one's ever had someone prosecuted ever, ever, like ne- never. And so. Um, that's a, I, I want consequences. I want a deterrent. Um, there, there aren't any. And our guys will tell you, I won't quite use their language, but they'll basically say, as long as it's us killing each other, nobody cares. And no one's, they, they know that. They know their lives aren't valued. But I'd be careful, Dave. Overall, the policing is broken here in Chicago, and we have you know, too many folks in our team who have been abused by the police. You know, one guy served 15 years for a crime he didn't commit. I mean, just you know, unimaginable, but that's his, that's his reality. But there are also individual amazing, amazing police officers. Trust between the police and the community has been broken, and the and the unwillingness to have that honest conversation um, is is devastating. Um, if, if we could, you know, if we could have effective policing, that would make our job so much easier. Dave, I can't, I can't tell you. I, we desperately want to get there, but you have to admit you have a problem. You have to do some things very differently to rebuild that trust. There's no you know, people talk about no stitching thing. No, it's not a no stitching thing. People are just terrified. They don't, they don't trust. And you can't have police who just sweep in, who don't know the community. You know, we're out there, our, our, you know, Kurt's outreach team, we're out there every single day. No one's armed, walking the streets, talking to people. I have never seen a police officer, correct, Kurt, you're talking wrong. I've never seen a police officer in six years walking, just talking to people. You rarely see them riding by. They're not present. And so when we, when something happens, Dave, we know in the next hour what happened because people talk to us, they've seen us. We're not just there in a crisis. And it's all about it's life, Dave. It's our work. It's building relationships. And they have to get out of their cars. They have to be in the communities. They have to walk in and they have to have those relationships and not just show up in a moment of, of uh, extraordinary you know, uh, crisis and trauma. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, I hear you talk and uh, people will hear you talk in Chicago and they'll say, well, that's a hell of an idea. Why don't you run for mayor and make it happen? Yeah, well, you you and I have talked about that, Dave, and I'm you know still unsettled and still struggling. But I mean, a couple of thoughts. One is you know as you know now, probably 20 people want to be mayor, and uh, nobody wants to do what I do, and no one wants to you know go where I go and see what I see every day. And I think it's important for me to stay really connected to to the work. And I, I think it's important for me. This is not about me or a candidate. This issue needs to win. Chicago's reputation is is in, in jeopardy. You know, our citizens are leaving our city. Our downtown is hollowing out. Everybody's losing now. And so if this issue can win um, and if we can help you know, whoever the next mayor might be um, get to a good place, um, for me right now, it's much more important to be, to be doing the work. And I, I talked to 
you know, a mutual friend of ours stated, you know, we, and I was really thinking hard about it and said, if I were to run, this is going back to February, that I have to spend the next year talking about the work and not doing the work. And I really, um, I struggled with that. And um, uh, I, I struggled to think, of, I know the neighborhoods I'm in every day. I know the neighborhoods that have to be in to raise money. Those aren't the same neighborhoods. And I just didn't want to wake up every day resentful for what I had to do. You know, you talk about effective policing and you wrote about it uh, while you were contemplating this. The mayor in Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, commented on your approach, which was to uh, shore up manpower, but also to take some resources and use them for other elements of uh dealing with epidemic violence in some of these neighborhoods. She called you a defund police guy, which has become kind of an epithet in American politics right now, as people are concerned. We saw a prosecutor recalled in San Francisco yesterday who wanted to have diversion programs for people who did not commit violent crimes and you know, came under attack for his approach. What was your reaction when, when the mayor said what she said? Well, it's just dishonest. I think that's part of the problem. So we need to, these are these are very important life and death issues, and we need to deal with them honestly. So if you look actually at her track record, as you know, Dave, she actually did defund the police. She would do 600 positions. And we've seen the exodus of police under her watch because of people being demoralized. So that's that's the facts. Um, it's also the fact that you know, on a per capita basis, we have as many or more police than any city in the country. And so if more police made us safer here in Chicago, we'd be the safest city uh, in America. And unfortunately, we're six times more violent than your hometown in New York and three to four times more violent. Yeah, than, why than why is that? Again, it's uh, it goes back to effectiveness or ineffectiveness. And we just haven't done those things. The police chief a couple of years ago centralized a bunch of units. So he took people out of the districts and put them in a centralized thing. It makes no We don't have centralized gangs anymore. There's no more. GDs and BDs in Roseland, in North Lawndale, we have north of 30 different cliques in each of those individual communities. You have to have people on the streets who know people. And people who's when things don't get solved, Dave, who's accountable? Nobody's accountable. So these shootings, the murders, the shootings that go unsolved, no one's accountable. You have to give people the resources and hold them accountable. So you got to give resources to the district commanders and hold them accountable to solve stuff. And when you remove those resources, to citywide units, and you got these cowboys running around, and we go to a scene of a homicide, and we're working with it. It's traumatic. People are screaming. I mean, you just imagine the chaos. We're working with uh, the the blue shirts, the guys from the neighborhood. There, they're telling our outreach you know, who to grab, who to talk to, do whatever. The white shirts talk to commanders. They're trying to arrest our outreach workers. You know, they have no clue what's going on. And so, for her to say anything like that is just so fundamentally dishonest. We need effective policing. Um, we need to rebuild the ranks and and we need to change the role. We have to rethink policing. <laughs> Give you a very concrete example. A couple of years ago, Austin, which has always been one of the top five most violent neighborhoods, um, they led the city in parking tickets. David, I don't care these days who parks where. I just want to stop shootings and to have police spending their time on parking tickets and not all I want them doing is solving homicides. That's all I want them doing. And the final thing I'll say is you see, you, know, you have some sense of, of how extraordinary Kurt is, how impactful and how important. But we have, um, as a city last year, we spent twice, think about this, David, we spent more than twice as much last year as a city on police misconduct settlements, lawsuits, than on violence uh, intervention. And we have 13,000 police, we got 27,000 know, teachers, um, we have about 250 outreach workers. And think if we had 
a lot more, you know, Kurt's extraordinary, but he's not unique. Think if we had, you know, a thousand outreach workers and a thousand clinicians and a thousand life coaches, not instead of the police, working with the police. Again, we're two sides of the same coin. Someone like Kurt, Kurt could have been given a life sentence. We could have thrown the keys away. We could have done whatever. We could have given up on him. But Dave, we can't win this war against violence without Curtis Toller and lots and lots of folks like him. And we just have to decide, are, are these young men part of the problem or part of the solution? And so we just need a level of honesty and clarity and commitment to doing the hard work. And the sound bites, absent reality, are why Chicago is so violent right now. What you guys are doing is meaningful and important and a blueprint. I, I mean, I think the next question would be, how, how do we scale that? Uh, because it's, it's an expensive proposition, but so is the cost of rampant shooting and deaths and lives ruined. And It is expensive, I want to be clear. It's cost twenty five dollars to $30,000 on average per guy, but they, that's for a year. And after that, they're spinning off as a taxpayer, as a productive citizen. It's a hell of a lot cheaper than a year in jail. Um, every shooting in the city costs 400000 Every homicide costs $1.4 million. We've seen a massive reverse migration of black families moving back down south because they worry about their black sons being killed. It hells out our tax base. The schools closed down. So we're in a vicious spiral. So I would argue this is the best investment. Bain has talked about a 19 to 1 ROI on this. I just want to be clear for your listeners that it's an expensive one-time investment, an important one-time investment that saves countless lives, but also saves taxpayers and city countless dollars going forward. I want people to understand that context. So that's Arnie Duncan, not running for mayor, but sounding like he should. And Curtis Toller, your work is, uh, again, so important. Thank you guys both for being here. Thanks for such a thoughtful conversation. Take care, Dave. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.